Turn, if you would, to the 11th chapter of the book of Matthew. One time I did start my lesson without saying, turn if you would, and I had people complain about it, so (laughs) I have to do it every week. Last week we started chapter 11. At the beginning of chapter 11, John sent his disciples, John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus asking, are you the one that we're waiting for or is there another coming? And Jesus responded by saying, come here, let me show you what I'm doing. And he showed that he was raising the dead, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, healing leprosy, which in the book of Isaiah is the criteria of the Messiah. And so he said, look at this. And they said, great. And they went back to John. And then Jesus had a discussion about who John was and is. And we had an interesting talk about the fact that Jesus said, of those born of women, there's no one greater than John. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And then we had a discussion about uh, the trials and tribulations, the fact that violent men have been attacking the kingdom. We actually had a question afterwards about the, the verse saying that from John the Baptist until now, you know, what is that time period? Well, is the now now or is the now when Jesus is speaking, which is probably the answer. But the answer somehow revolves around the fact that there are those who are working to subvert the kingdom of heaven. There are those who are actively at work then and now to stop the preaching of the gospel. Why is that? Well, we looked at John chapter 1, John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, who talked about John the Baptist coming into the world to talk about the light who was Jesus But the world loved the darkness and so rejected the light which was Jesus. We have to accept the fact that whenever the gospel is preached, there are those who are going to respond positively to it. There are going to be those who just kind of ignore it. And there's going to be those who violently attack it. And we should not be surprised at all of these responses. That's just the way the world is. So... We finished off, um, let's see, verse 16. But what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. The world says, here, come this way. This is important. And they expect us to come along. Wait. They say, no, come this way. I'm acting real sad. What do you mean you're not responding? I'm singing a wonderful, upbeat, lively song. And you're, you're not following the pattern of this world. And Jesus says, John comes not eating, fasting and all that, and you complain about him. I come enjoying good meals with sinners and tax collectors, and you complain about that. What's the bottom line? They're just going to complain about it. Whatever it is, they're going to complain. So we pick up today in verse 20. Then he began, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazim! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow. Kind of judgmental. I mean, it would be like me standing up and saying, Fort Worth, you are going to Hades. It's a nicer word than the other one, right? That's rather judgmental of Jesus, don't you think? That he would stand up and condemn entire communities, and in fact, he would say, you know how wretched Sodom was? 
I mean, if you want to have, you know, kind of the gold standard of wicked cities, Sodom is usually the picture. You remember the story, right? Lot moves to Sodom. God says, I'm going to punish uh, Sodom because it is the most wretched place in the world. And Abraham begs for a while, you know, what if there's 50 righteous people? Will you destroy it? Eh, if there's 50, I won't do it. How about 45? How about 40? How about if there's 10? And Abraham figured he'd won the doubt. There's got to be at least 10 righteous people in any community, right? And God says, sure, if I find 10. How many did he, did he find? Well, we know about Lot. But we're not real sure about Lot, except the New Testament does say Lot was a righteous man, so we'll have to go with that. But it doesn't look like it. Sodom was a wretched place. And here Jesus is looking at good Jewish communities saying, Sodom's going to be better off than you are. Why? Why would he say that? Well, what we see is a universal principle that we have talked about repeatedly. We talked about this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember. And that principle is this. The more you know, the more guilty you are. If you know more of the gospel and fail to respond to what you know, you are more guilty than those who did not receive the gospel message. That's strange. The more you know, the more you reject, the more guilty you are. Here Jesus is. He's at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he does most, not all, but most of his ministry. And he visits this community, and they bring the sick, and he heals them. They bring the blind, and he cures them. They bring those that are demon-possessed, and he casts out the demons. Wow, you would think the whole city would have a revival. And the city would go, what else can you do for me? Well, I'll feed you. Well, that's great. How about tomorrow's lunch? And these communities where Jesus was performing his greatest miracles were looking at Jesus and saying, no, I don't think so. Why would they do that? Why would they? I mean... If somebody walked in here and cured somebody who had been blind from birth, who everybody knew had been blind from birth, and all of a sudden he could read the bottom line of the eye chart, we ought to be impressed. We ought to go, wow, I can't do that. I mean, there's a lot of people today faking healings and things like that. But there's no faking here, okay? This guy was blind. Everybody in the community knew he was blind, and now he can see. How did that happen? The grace of God. Wow. The blind man's all excited. He knows he was blind and now he could see. But the community looked at that and said, eh, whatever. Why did they do that? Why didn't they respond to the gospel message? Anybody want to answer that for me? They wanted to keep their situation like it was. We're a good Jewish community. Our good Jewish leaders tell us to stick with what we know best. And this guy's an upstart. Let's run him out of town. So Jesus takes... Tyre and Sidon, which were good old-fashioned pagan Phoenician cities, and he compares them to these good Jewish communities. And I might add, since our beloved Esther is not here, this is not an attack on good Jewish communities. This is an attack on any community, any group of people who hears the gospel and just doesn't think that much of it. It's just not that important. So he takes these pagan communities of Tyre and Sidon and he says, judgment is going to be less for them than for you because you had access to the Jewish law, 
You had access to the gospel. You had the miracles performed and you still rejected. What is this telling us? Remember the discussion, the parable, if you will, that Jesus had about Abraham and Lazarus and they both died and Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom and and, uh, the rich man went to the bad place and he said, well, just send somebody to... Send Lazarus to my brothers to tell them not to come. Surely if they saw a miracle, they would respond. And guess what? God can perform miracles. Jesus can perform miracles. The apostles can perform miracles. And the people say no. But because they've been, respond, they've been exposed to the gospel, their guilt is greater than if they had never heard. Now, we could have a long discussion at this point about those who, in fact, who have never heard. You know, are they still guilty, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going there, except to say that Romans chapter 1 does say that all of us are aware of the law of God because it's been written on our hearts. We ought to have known, even if we're in the midst of the deepest, darkest Africa, we ought to have known that there is a creator. So we're all guilty, but there are degrees of guilt. And he says, for those of you who have heard, for those of you who have heard and not responded, what did Jesus say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? If you hear the word and you put it into practice, good things are going to happen. But if you hear the word and don't put it into practice, You will be like the fool who builds his house on the sand, and when the storm comes, whoosh, off it goes. Now, I've told you this before, but I'll let you in on a little secret. All of you have heard. What does that mean? You're responsible for how you respond to it. Is this a judgmental passage in today's standards the answer is probably yes we had a discussion during the sermon on the mount about what it meant to be judgmental because remember the passage don't judge lest in the same way that you judge others you will be judged etc etc we're not going to have that discussion the reason we're not going to have that discussion is because there's another discussion that's even more important and that is that jesus is going to judge the world we can argue whether you can okay just in case you're unaware of the fact you're not Jesus, you're not God. But Jesus is God, and Jesus is going to judge the world, and when Jesus says, this is worse than that, we had better pay attention. Why? Because we don't want to be those who are on the bad side of this judgment. What does that mean? We hear the gospel, we respond to the gospel. Or... There is greater judgment. (sighs) That's the negative part of today's lesson. Now's the good stuff. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Lord, for such was your gracious will. First off, what are these things that have been hidden from the wise and understanding. Well, I think in the context we would believe that it is the gospel message. The message that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is coming to bring salvation, that's the thing that's been hidden from the wise. Now, it's a strange passage. I thank you, Lord, that this certain thing has been hidden from the really smart people and the children can understand it. Does that mean we're better off ignorant? Does that mean we're better off stupid? No. Throughout the scriptures, though, we talk about wisdom in at least two different ways. You go read the book of Proverbs, and it's all about becoming wise. How do we learn to live our lives with skill and understanding? 
That's what wisdom is. We do it by meditating on the Word of God, by recognizing what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If I am going to build a life built on wisdom, I am going to start with an understanding of who God is. Contrasted to that throughout the scripture is the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world is built on the principles of this world, whatever those might be. It's how smart can I be if I ignore God? Let's start with the knowledge that there is no God and let's start using our reason to figure out how we ought to live our lives. And that's where we are today. And in the scripture, that's called the wisdom of this world. They're really smart. These are really smart people. They've thought about things, but they've thought about them from the wrong starting point. For example, the dominant philosophy that we have today, or one of the pieces of it, is naturalism. We've talked about this in here repeatedly. That is, if I can't touch it, taste it, feel it, smell it, whatever the fifth one is, it doesn't exist. All there is is a material world. Now, let's start right there. Let's start from that assumption. What is religion? Well, it is man's feeble, irrational attempt to explain the phenomena of this world because he just can't handle the truth that we're just dust. That's what religion is. And there's nicer ways of saying that, and there's less nice ways of saying that. And guess what? I've read a lot of them. They both exist. Let's talk about ethics. This world is all that exists. Let's build an ethical system. And we try to do that. Go read C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man and you'll see where that ends up. Nowhere. Because there's no way to get a sentence that says you ought to do something from a stack of sentences that say this is true. You are a human being. That's a fact. You ought not kill a human being. Why not? There's no list of sentences that you can concoct to tell me why I shouldn't kill you. Somewhere, someone has to say, thou shalt not kill. There has to be an ethical statement that precedes the material world. That's why we kill babies so callously. We just do. That's why we define morality to fit whatever our society wants at this point in time. You played a dirge and you didn't mourn. You sang a joyful song. You didn't go with me. You didn't. The wise of this world do not understand the things of God. Now, are there believers who are wise? Yes. We are called to use every molecule of your mind to pursue an understanding of this world, beginning with the fact that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is the basis upon which everything else, but the world looks at that and says, no. Let's start someplace else. Why do they do that? Because the light came into the world and the world rejected it because the world loves the darkness. This shouldn't surprise you. So Jesus says, thank you, God, that the wise and the understanding of this world are rejecting it, but children, children are accepting it. Now, once again, in the scripture we have a discussion of what it means to be a child in the eyes of God. It doesn't mean being childish. It means being childlike. If you look in Matthew chapter 18, starting at the very beginning, 
At this time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, you know the answer they want, right? It's you twelve. There's no one greater than you. Rah, rah. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, and here it is, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is the characteristic that Jesus is pointing to when he says the children can accept this and that characteristic is humility? Remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who acknowledge the fact they cannot do it on their own. As long as you think that you can reason yourself into the kingdom of heaven because you're smarter than the guy next door to you, as long as you believe you can do it, as long as you believe that it's up to you to do it, as long as you think you have to understand everything in the universe before you can accept the gospel, you're not going to accept the gospel. But when you say, gosh, I can't do that. Children know they need help. Sometimes they're not real friendly about the way they ask for that help, but that's a whole different subject. They know there's things they can't do. They know that if they want to go somewhere, mommy or daddy has to take them there. They know that they can't protect themselves. They need mommy and daddy to protect them. They know they need help. Now, the child may, in a bout of stubbornness, go, no, I'll do it. And at some point, you just say, sure, try it knowing they don't have a clue on what they need to do. When the child, when the human being acknowledges that before God I am just an infant, in humility they say, I cannot do it, then Jesus says, gotcha, I'll give that to you. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Why is this his gracious will? Grace, will, he chose. He chose gracefully. Why did he do that? Okay, let's construct an alternative reality, okay? You can get into heaven if you can explain every passage of the Bible. Every one of them. <sighs> Sorry, I'm not going to make it. You can get into heaven if you score 95 or above on the universal knowledge test. The universal knowledge test has a lot of questions on it. A lot of questions. I give you this test so the smartest people on the planet can make it in, but the rest of you, sorry. Thomas Aquinas, good Catholic theologian, wrote his Summa Theologica where he tried to explain all of theology. Massive work. It is a series of questions. It's kind of interesting. It's set up as an argument. He poses a statement, and then he poses the counter-statement, and then he has arguments against the original statement, and then he says his position, or the position of the church fathers, and then he answers all the questions. And he does this for 4,000 pages. Page one. Why do we have revelation? Why does God reveal truth to us? And one of the objections is, aren't the philosophers good enough to help us find truth? 
And Thomas Aquinas, brilliant, smart guy, says, if only the brilliant got into heaven, there wouldn't be many people doing it. But God, in his grace, grace, provided a door for all of us, even the children, to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it's an old discussion that we have all the time. How much of the Bible should you understand? And my answer is always, more. Whatever you know today, tomorrow you ought to know more. And the day after that you ought to know more, and the day after that you ought to know more. But let's give a different question. How much of the Bible do you have to understand to become a believer I'm a sinner, Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sins, and there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And then we can talk about baptism. Then we can talk about the Lord's Supper. We can talk about sanctification. We can talk about predestination. No, we won't even go there. We can talk about all of that stuff. I've told you before, our church has a doctrinal statement. It is a statement of what we believe based on our understanding of the Bible. How much of that do you have to believe in order to join the church? Jesus died for your sins, accept Jesus Christ, and you're a believer. And that's about it. I went to a huge conference in D.C. years, years ago. We were living up there. Big-name speakers from all over the country to talk about the inerrancy of the Scripture. And we were in a smaller group in it was questions and answers. And somebody said, do you have to believe in the inerrancy of the scripture in order to be a believer? And this big name speaker, big author, he said, no. Now you probably have to do it to believe in, to have good church discipline and that kind of stuff. And he believed it. I mean, without question. How much do you have to know to get in? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. How much brain power does it take to understand that? Even I can figure that one out. God, our Father, in his grace, has made the gospel accessible to everyone on the planet. You don't have to be the wise of this world. And in fact, being the wise of this world may interfere with things. Now, do not leave here thinking that I'm saying it's better to be stupid than to be wise. There's an old saying, isn't there? Life is hard, but it's even harder if you're stupid. Something like that. We are called to use whatever brain cells we have to pursue the glory of God. Read good books. Study the Bible. Pray about the Bible. Wrap your head around it. But guess what? If you begin with the theories of this world and build your system, you're going to end up in the wrong place. If you start with the fear of God and build up, you will end where God wants you to be. God, in your graciousness, has made it available to children, whereas the wise kind of look at it and go, nah, that can't possibly true, be true, because it doesn't match up with my philosophy. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. This is kind of a confusing sentence. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Wow. What does this mean? Let's remind ourselves. And I say remind ourselves because it is interesting to me 
that there are those who haven't grasped this idea, but just to make sure you understand, Jesus is God, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're not going to talk about God the Holy Spirit. We will, but not right now. God the Father and God the Son have an intimate relationship as two members of the Trinity. It is an intimate relationship that you and I would have trouble grasping in our feeble, childlike minds. The Father has revealed himself to the Son. The Son has revealed himself to the Father because of this intimate relationship that they have. There are things that my wife knows about me that y'all don't know, and if you did know, I wouldn't be standing up here. Just a hint. Okay? Why? Because we have an intimate relationship and there is knowledge and information flowing back and forth between those two because they have an intimate relationship like my wife and like I hope you have with your spouse, okay? So how do we know about God? Well, elsewhere and in this passage, Jesus will tell you, you want to look at the Father? Isn't it one of the apostles that says, show us the Father? And he says what? Look at me. If you've seen me, God incarnate, God in the flesh, if you want to look at God, look at me, Jesus. That's how we see it. So, let's take this sentence and back it up. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus is speaking. The Father has given me everything. Why did he do that? Because Jesus created it. By power of creation, all of the created order belongs to Jesus. Jesus says, the Father has given me everything. Why does this apply to us? I can save you. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Now that's an interesting part of the sentence to me. Because I thought we were supposed to know the Son so we could know the Father. Well, that's true. But who truly understands the Son? The Father. Because of their intimate relationship. We know things about Jesus because Jesus has revealed them to us. But we don't know everything about Jesus. If one of you believes that you read some really thick, thick book about the attributes of God, and at the end of that book you know everything about God, you're kidding yourself. You may know a lot about God, but you don't know everything about God. My opinion? What are we going to do in heaven? We're going to spend eternity learning about an infinite God. You say, that sounds boring. That's a red flag, by the way, if you know what I'm talking about. If you think learning about God is going to be boring, you should have a discussion with yourself and a close clergy member about your salvation because, because the knowledge of God is what we are called to pursue. So the Father knows everything about the Son as the Son knows everything about the Father and we know some things about the Father because we see it in the Scripture and we see it through the revelation of Jesus Christ and we know some things about Jesus because we see it in the Gospel messages. Let's keep reading. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Here's God the Father, here is the Son, and here's me. What do I know about God the Father? What God the Son has chosen to reveal 
to me. Now, that's a scary thought, and we're actually going to have a discussion about that in a couple of weeks because we're going to start talking about parables. And I'll give you a little glimpse right now of that discussion because we tend to think of parables as sermon illustrations. But when they asked Jesus why he taught in parables, it was actually so certain people wouldn't understand the truth. Wait a minute. Wouldn't understand? Wouldn't understand the truth. More about that in a couple of weeks. The Son reveals the Father to humanity. Now, why is that an amazing thing? God doesn't have to reveal himself to anybody. You know that, right? God doesn't have to save anybody. The moment that you and I sinned, well, we could back up. The moment Adam, as our representative, sinned, God could have just said, to heck with them. And that could have been the end of the story. And God could have been right and just and holy, and nobody could have argued with him. But God, who is gracious, the gracious God, who allows those who are like children to enter the kingdom, opposed to those who are the wise of the world, have said, I'm going to provide a way. And the Son is going to reveal the Father to us. That's why we need to read the Bible. Yeah, I know. You can go to that nice cabin in Colorado and look at God's creation and learn things about God. You can do that. You ought to do that. But God has revealed himself in the scripture through the life of Christ in a way that far exceeds the beauty of God's creation in Colorado. Once again, there's nothing wrong with Colorado. I like Colorado. Ah, here comes the best part of it. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's interesting to me. He sits there and he blasts these cities, Capernaum, for being ignorant, for not responding to the miracles that he was performing. He blasts them. And then it's like he starts thinking, isn't God gracious? This is Jesus. Isn't God gracious? By providing a way for all of us to get in, by providing an example, a picture of God that we can understand? Why would he do that? Because we're all tired. No, we're not going to have a show of hands. What are we tired of? Good Jewish community. Good Jewish community who's been taught they have to follow the law. Nice group of scribes and Pharisees sitting on the periphery telling you that not only do you have to keep the set of laws that are in Exodus, Leviticus, whatever, but I've got some more for you. When you're done with those, I've got another list for you to keep. And until you get through with that list, you're not going to make it. You know what? You need to work harder to get into the kingdom of heaven. And I've got the list. But you know what? You really are burdened by your sin. Your sin is this weight on your back that is pressing you down. It is a burden. And then here come the legalists who take another sack of rocks and pile on top of that burden. Why? Because you did the first list and it didn't cure the problem. So here, have another sack of rocks to carry around. 
The burden gets bigger and bigger. The guilt is real. I was reading a discussion just yesterday, you know, fake guilt, true guilt. And there are such things, right? The world would have you to believe all guilt is just some figment of your imagination. You feel bad because you did something that 80 years ago your mother said was bad. And you need to get over it. And with some good therapy, we can get you over that. The reality is God says thou shalt not, and we do, and we feel guilty. Why? Because God uses that guilt to drive us back to Jesus. The guilt is real, but it's a burden that's a weight that is on our shoulders. And then the legalists take that guilt and they use it as an excuse to pile more and more. And pretty much we're crawling on the ground with this weight on our shoulders and we are tired of it. And Jesus says to them, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What are we heavy laden? The guilt of our sin and the attempt to get rid of it on our own. I dare say that every religion of the world, with the exception of the revealed word of God in the scripture, every religion in the world is trying to do that in some form or fashion. How do we get rid of this burden and find rest? It is interesting You read the whole scripture, and there are verses after verses after verses about rest. We think of rest as I'm sitting here laying on my sofa, collapsed after doing whatever it is I did. That's rest. And I don't know about you, I don't get enough of it. Okay? Rest in the scripture means that we are no longer burdened by the weight of our sin. We still may be doing things. Adam and Eve were going to work in the garden before the fall. But guess what? There was not going to be any burden associated with it. There weren't going to be any thorns. There weren't going to be any thistles. There weren't going to be any weeds. They were going to work the garden to the glory of God, and that was going to be rest. We get into the giving of the law. Six days shall you labor, one day shall be a day of rest. He's trying, God is trying to teach them that you have to get to the point where you just trust God. Why do we rest? You know, if I worked on the seventh day, I could make one-sixth more money than if I only worked five, six days. Woo! I need more. Do you know the state of my bank account? I need more. And God says, stop it. Just rest. Just trust me. The burden is the guilt of our sin and our attempt to get rid of it. The rest is the acknowledgement that God has taken care of all of my needs and I can depend upon him. I may still do things. I mean, the scripture says there are things you can do on the Sabbath. In fact, we're going to get into a discussion because Jesus' disciples get attacked for, well, harvesting wheat on the Sabbath. We are to take care of people on the Sabbath. We are to do acts of mercy on the Sabbath. There are things we're supposed to do on the Sabbath. But you know what? We're not doing those to earn something because God has already given it to us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke. Now, this is a strange picture for 21st century Americans. I'm going to ask this question just out of curiosity. How many of you ever in your life 
worked oxen with a yoke? Anybody? Not me. I asked the question because I remember being in the Smithsonian one time with my father-in-law looking at ancient tractors. And my father-in-law said, oh, yeah, I drove one of those. I go, really? It's in the museum. Anyway. A oxen, an ox, has so much power to pull a plow. But what if I took two of them and hooked them together? Then the problem becomes how to get two oxen to work together to accomplish a goal. I mean, if I put one and put the next one behind it, then the first one is pretty much just pulling the second one. Doesn't give you much help. But what they figured out is if I put this yoke around the necks of both of them, side by side, they put their shoulder muscles into that yoke, they could accomplish twice as much or more than a single ox could do. But there was another benefit to it. I've got this ox that I've trained to do what needs to be done. What needs to be done? I need you to walk a straight row, pull in this plow. When I get to the end of the row, I'm going to make a sound. You're going to turn around and we're going to go back the other way. Good ox, well trained. I've got this other ox. He's a kid. What do kids do? They do anything they want. But I've got a trick. I'm going to take this kid and I'm going to strap him to this well-trained ox and this well-trained ox is going to teach this kid ox to go to the end of the row, turn around and come back. He's going to train the younger. He is going to train the weaker. And Jesus said, I've got a yoke. I'm in one side of it and you're in the other. Come with me. Now, it's a strange metaphor to me. Why? What's the purpose of a yoke? To hook the oxen together so they can work the field. So they can work the field. And I'm going, wait a minute, what about resting? How about if I have a lawn chair for two and Jesus sits there and talks to me? Wouldn't that make sense? Wouldn't that be a much better metaphor than a yoke? Except for the fact, remember several weeks ago in our lesson? The field is ripe unto harvest. The world needs Jesus Christ. It doesn't need more Christians sitting in their easy chairs. Yeah, but it sounds like work. What all this stuff about my yoke is... What about rest? What about getting rid of the burden? Have I just taken one burden and replaced it with another burden? And the answer is no. Why? What is the burden? The guilt of my sin and my attempts to get rid of it on my own. Jesus removes that and says, come with me. We have some things to do for the glory of the Father. But I don't know how to do that. I know you don't, but I'll show you. Come with me. Walk side by side with me as we go into the field to reap the harvest. And you go, wow, that sounds cool. Can I take these rocks with me? No, you don't need the rocks. Can I beat myself up with these rules? No, you don't need those. It's just you and me walking through the field, working on the harvest that God has prepared for us. It keeps us focused. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You know, we have images of Jesus clearing out the temple, and it's a true story. We'll talk about it in several months. We have imagery of Jesus being very strong. But when he describes himself, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. We could just stop right there. We are called, what? To imitate Christ. Christ is what? Gentle and 
lowly in heart, which would be meek. Guess what we're called to be? Gentle. Guess what I'm not sometimes? Gentle. Why am I not gentle? Because I've popped this yoke off, and I want to wander over here and collect some more rocks. I like rocks. And Jesus says, no, come back over here. Come back over here with me and follow me, and we'll go work the field. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke appears to me to be an instrument of work. And it is. But the guarantee that Christ has given us is that compared, compared to the burden of my guilt and my feeble attempts to take care of it on my own, the yoke of walking with Christ is easy because it doesn't have the burden. You know, easy is a relative term, right? Easy, easier, hard, harder, harder, whatever. You know, I think I've told this story to you before, but my uh, wife and I and my sister and her husband went skiing one year. My wife had never skied, ever. My sister is an expert. And at lunch, they said, you need to go up on the big slope to see the view. And I asked the stupid question, how do we get down? To which my sister responded, oh, there's an easy slope. We get to the top. There's not an easy slope. There is an easier slope. (laughs) To make a long story very short, my wife is in tears at the bottom. My brother-in-law, who skis very well, was gracious enough to accompany. I'm not good enough to stay with her. I mean, easy. Easy in our mind is sitting in the easy chair, drinking our drink of choice, and watching something on TV. Why? Because we still believe in a material universe where we think me, taking care of me, is the highest good. The highest good is to get rid of the burden and then walk with Christ. And that's what we're called to do. And what he tells us is, compared to what you had before, It's a piece of cake. It's a piece of cake. Take my yoke and walk with me as we work the fields that God has prepared. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise that you have given us. I pray, Lord, that we would, that we would accept your rest. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.